This is the Get Healthy 360 podcast, where we discuss topics related to your physical, mental, psychological, and spiritual health. Your host is Dr. Chris Ferguson, board certified in anesthesiology and pain management. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and you should consult your primary healthcare provider before making any decisions related to your health. And here's your host, Dr. Chris Ferguson. Oh, one more thing before we start. If you like this episode, please consider rating us five stars. We would really appreciate it. Thanks very much. Today we have with us a special episode. We have with us Dr. Marion Moss. She started a group, Practicing Physicians of America. And what we're talking about today, and it will be a a little bit of a complicated episode, but we're getting into the politics and really what goes into healthcare in America. All of these influences that are directly affecting the healthcare that you get. And often it seems that people will show up to their physicians, NPs, PAs, offices, and their healthcare provider is telling them things, but the things that the, the physician is doing and the things that they can offer are influenced by all of these major players that, that often the public is not even aware of. So, Marion, thanks for for joining us today. Oh, I'm delighted to be on the show. Thanks for having me. So how did you get involved in politics and lobbying and starting the Practicing Physicians of America group? Well, first of all, understand that I I lobby with information. Um, I don't lobby with money. I find information more valuable. So how did I get involved? My husband and I, I felt like when we trained in medical school, we started at Duke University in 1990. I think we saw a beautiful side of medical education and medicine, almost like the last bastion of what it meant to be a doctor and to be able to fulfill your Hippocratic. And since that time, I've seen encroachment of industry and encroachment of government more and more into healthcare. And I realized that the industry and the government are completely tied together. They're doing it together. So I started reading and watching and I started reaching out to grassroots organizations because I felt that they were more pure. The legacy organizations seemed to have conflicts of interest. And I was already heavily involved when several weeks after my father passed away, my mother was hospitalized. Um, She had Alzheimer's and couldn't grieve and needed to be in inpatient uh, Jerry site. And it was a comedy of errors. You can actually go and read about it on Kevin MD. So if you look up Marianne Mass, Kevin MD, you can read about it. I can now talk about it without crying. When it first happened, I thought to myself, wow, how is it possible that my mother who had good Medicare Advantage insurance in an accoladed hospital with a, a physician daughter who already understood the system could be humiliated by a failing system like this. And so it almost struck strengthen my resolve. It sort of, (laughs) it pumped me up. (laughs) So two years ago, I reached out to some of the grassroots physicians that I knew, and we felt as though we wanted a a nonpartisan or a transpartisan, as we like to say, group of physicians that were starting to do more writing and expressing ourselves to the lay public, even in shows like this. So Dr. Ferguson, it's a wonderful opportunity. And I I truly mean that. Um, Either expressing ourselves on radio show, dare I hope someday television. I've done certainly a number of publications and then concomitant to doing that, we are also getting some voice with legislators and that is certainly building. So, and I know you published it on Kevin NMD, but can you give what you're willing to share about what happened with your mom? Oh, sure. Well, it is, it's public knowledge. It's, it's published on there. My father had lived with my family on hospice under my roof with my children who were teens and tweens at the time. And, um, he had lived here for three and a half weeks and my mother I mean, they had had a marriage over 50 years and we didn't tell my mother that my father passed, but she noticed that he had stopped visiting. And so she started acting out in her in her memory unit. She was institutionalized. And it's really horrible to watch someone go through that and 
you know, I have a very, I had a very, very special mother, a very special father too. I was a lucky woman. Um, I'm the only daughter. There, there were five of us and I'm the only daughter. And I actually have another physician uh, sibling. He's an MD, PhD cardiologist. So there's my mother. And the first thing happened is the hospital accepted her. And then she got there to the ER and was acting out. They gave her a big slug of Haldol, a giant slug. And she's a tiny woman, was a tiny woman. <laughs> Still hard to say was. It's so many years now. They gave her that big slug of Haldol. And then they called the nursing home and said, oh, we're just going to send her back. She's now. And I said, oh no, you're taking her Jerry Psych. And they said, oh, she can't go to Jerry Psych. She's got dementia. No one with dementia can go to Jerry Psych. It's an administrator rule. I'm like, who's on your Jerry Psych ward? I'd like to get a look around there. You know, who do you have on there? It was just shocking to me. So instead they admitted her to a regular ward and they told me that they would put her on a watch. And so it was late at night. I went back home. The next morning I came and I found her wearing a diaper and four point restraints. It was a really particularly low moment for me. But I put my chin up and after a good cry, I went out and said, hey, you know, it's 1130. My mother's not eating and drinking and she hasn't touched her breakfast and it's 1130. Could someone please help me readjust her restraints, sit her up in bed, and then I'll spoon feed her. And it was two medical students sitting there from a prominent medical school. They looked up and said to me, it's not our job. Now, I don't mean to bash on medical students. I know they're working hard, but I think the model now is administrators all tell us what our roles are and what we're allowed to do and not allowed to do, right? And I think that that's actually a very bad thing. I think it really disparages teamwork. So a nice nurse helped me and then I spoon fed my mother. And then I talked to the staff and told them she's over sedated and this is not how she usually acts. And we're just trying to get her medications adjusted so that she's not violent anymore. And I explained to them everything that happened to my father. And then I said, you know, I work part-time and I've done that so I could help take care of my aging parents. I've got three kids at home. They're still pretty young. And, you know, my husband's a surgeon and uh, I missed a lot of work because of dad living at the Sun hospice. So now I can come here the next three days and certainly help. I understand you can't give her a 24-7 watch. I'll do my best. and then, uh, But then I'm going to have a couple days when I can't get here. They said, no problem. So I spoon-fed my mom for three days. And then there was three days when I couldn't make it. And by the way, the hospital was an hour and a half away from my home. You know, if you could imagine, dad on hospice, under my roof. I had to bury my father, you know, with the help of my brothers and such. But there's a, there's something about being a, the woman. And I, I'm, not, I'm not a divider. I really appreciate the different strengths that men and women usually bring to the table. To tell you the truth, Dr. Ferguson, and sometimes I, I always say I'm not really a real woman because I grew up with so many boys, but a lot of the fostering work falls on a woman. You need to make the appointments for the kids. You need to take the kids to the appointments. I see this again and again as a pediatrician. You know, the, it's the mom that's bringing the kids in by and large. I don't mean to generalize. I, I bet you're a crackerjack dad and I know we've talked about you having some children of your own. And I think that role's changing, but I certainly didn't feel fully changed. So I had done a lot of work. I was tired. I was exhausted. My children had lost their beloved grandfather. One of them had witnessed my mother get violent. It was really, they needed me. So there were three days I couldn't get there plus work. And I had missed a lot of work, but I'm calling every day. You know, could you please make sure that my mother's not sedated? I know I can't talk to her. She's, I mean, she didn't, she had given up using the phone a year and a half before that. And they're reassuring me. They're reassuring me. I wasn't calling every minute, like once or twice a day, just to check in. She's fine. She's getting plenty. She's fine. She had no IVN. So they told me she's ready for discharge. And I go to this accoladed hospital with my brother. And I find my mother completely obtunded, a, a shriveled up raisin. And obtunded um, for the lay audience means that she was non-responsive. She was just flat out dehydrated. So I asked the nurse, you know, how much fluid has she had? It was 12 ounces in three days since I had been there. So it wasn't great nutrition before that, but it was whatever I could spoon feed into her. I was assuming she was getting enough. And 
they dehydrated my mother. I suppose it's possible they, they could have killed her because they didn't even notice she was dehydrated. I, that's just pathetic. So I called the nursing home she came from. I told them what was going on. They said, get her hydrated and we'll take her back. And I hauled her out of there with my brother in the back of my van. We took her to a local hospital where she used to get good care. And it was a hospital that I had been on staff at, as a matter of fact, because that's where my parents got their care. So the staff all knew me. And I just, I will never forget the face of the nurse when I pulled in. And then the face of the nurse who took care of my mother, who had a mother also suffering from Alzheimer's. And that woman was in her 60s. You know, I felt like, wow, at least my mom's like almost 80. I had more time. They hydrated my mother and they took her back. And instead of suing, we reported the case to the Joint Commission in the Department of Health. They reassured me everything was done well. And less than a year later, a friend called me. And that friend uh, told me, you know, Marion, I know you know a lot about medicine and I'm really struggling with the system. My mother is hospitalized. She has pneumonia. You know, my father just passed away. And my mother also has Alzheimer's, just like I know your mom did. And she's getting care that I, it just doesn't seem like it's adding up. And I can't get the hospital to listen to me in the hospitals. It's an hour and a half away from me. I mean, this is a woman who like her children and my children went to the same school and they're in my parish church, right? It was the same hospital, Dr. Ferguson, that <laughs> promised me that they had changed things. And it was the, almost the same round of problems or just in another version. And I thought to myself, I sort of almost felt like a little bit like, <laughs> smug, like I had fixed things with the Department of Health and the Joint Commission. Now everything was going to be better. It didn't do a thing to report it to those government agencies. And worse than that, I thought to myself, my friend and I have, we have, we're at least, we can, we're strong advocates. In my case, I'm a physician and where parents had good Medicare Advantage insurance and this was an accoladed hospital. If that happens in that setting, what in God's name happens in Kensington District of Philadelphia to someone that doesn't have good insurance or coverage and who doesn't have an advocate to speak out for them. What happens to that person? And so, as I said, I had already known a little bit about the system. So it was just sort of, if this is what you're going to do to my mother, who was a community volunteer who raised five children, she had the twins at 43. She ran the PTA. She saved the library. You know, she delivered meals for the church. She cleaned the church. If you name it, she did it. They weren't going to do that to my mother. And I almost felt as though it was my mother <laughs> saying, okay, you got to do something. So that's why I do it. As a, as a quick side note, it is interesting that people think when they go to a, and, and, so, and you can get exceptionally good care at large institutions, but sometimes small hospitals, it's those little things that the nurses and physicians really pay attention to in small hospitals. Because like you said, you went to a smaller hospital and, and they really got to know you or they, or they knew you and they took, in, the, in your case, much better care than a large hospital where people are just shuffling in and out often. Right. And I don't mean to, it's not a total bash on all <clears throat> points of healthcare. The nursing home that she was at, the memory unit, they were some of the best people that I've ever seen in terms of like their dedication and their caring and their skills. I was so grateful for that place. And, you know, my mother got exceptional care and my father did too at that little tiny community hospital. I'll shout them out because I'm saying something good. It's Grandview Hospital and I, I worked there. I haven't been there for a long time. I do something different, but still. But it know. seems like when you start to remove all of the bureaucracy between healthcare workers and patients, that's when you get better care, which it sounds like that's what you're looking to do with your organization. Oh, well, heavens, you know, I mean, how many people are sneakily in the examination room? You know, if you think about it, the basis of healthcare is whatever is happening between a physician and the patient, sometimes, you know, a nurse and a patient in a hospitalized setting. But, you know, right now, you got everyone up in that exam room. 
room. You know, you've got the insurance companies, of course, and the patients know that. I think America needs to understand it's not just the insurance companies. The insurance companies are enforcing through the government the electronic health record. You know, so in 2009 in the stimulus bill, they mandated that physicians and hospitals had to buy electronic health records or else get fined. And they had to buy a government approved electronic health record. You know, the biggest system in the country is called Epic. Go look up Epic CEO and see like, you know, what she's up to. It's uh, a, <laughs> and they own, I think 50% of the data in America. It's really quite astounding. And the, the electronic health records, they're set up so that physicians get, you know, so the insurance companies and the physicians that, that the billing happens, the electronic health records are based on the CPT coding, the, um, the CPT coding that we all need to be able to check the boxes of so that hospitals, physicians get paid. So the electronic health record is now in the room and the patients recognize this and they roll and there's the doctor on their uh, on their computer, on their EHR. Actually, uh, Dr. Ken Fisher of Michigan, um, a retired uh, nephrologist, and I wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal last year uh, in March, why your doctor's computer is so clunky. And like we said, the bottom line is, is that the government gets to dictate what kind of computer is acceptable so that the physician is not getting fined. And all the iterations of computer systems that came out, they're actually quite terrible because they're so clunky. I take care of pediatric patients, right? And I know what those patients have for fun at home with their video games. They've got a cute little headset and they've got great graphics and so on and so forth. Well, in the best children's hospitals in America, we have a clunky system and we have to either sit there and look at the system and type And during that time, we're missing our visual cues from our patients, or we have to hire a scribe to come into the room. So you actually get another live person in the room there. And then when you go to discharge the patient, let's just say that you need to send them out. You have, I mean, I think almost everyone in America could understand a patient getting discharged with an ear infection. I mean, they're one of the most common pediatric diagnoses. So we have to send out the patient for an ear infection and uh, we have to pick a drug that's on a formulary because we don't even really get to say what drug we want to use. In a way, ear infection might not be the best example because it's there's really a pretty clear choice of antibiotics. But with any healthcare encounter, the formulary that we have is the list of allowable drugs that the insurance company will pay for. And it has tiers, you know, like I guess it's like gold, silver, and bronze, right? And so the insurance company formulary is chosen by groups that probably lots of us are hearing about now because it's my special issue, pharmacy benefit managers or PBMs. America knows them as uh, Express Scripts, CDS Caremark, and Optum. Those are the country's three biggest PBMs, and they're all tied to specific insurance companies, CVS uh, Caremark, just bought Aetna. Optum has for a long time been tied to United and Express Express Scripts is merging with Cigna. So these PBMs are responsible for putting the formularies out. And remarkably, our government gave these PBMs the legal right to receive money from pharmaceutical companies. So the pharmaceutical companies are functionally buying their way onto the formulary. They're paying the PBMs who don't do any manufacture, don't do any research and development. They don't even distribute the drugs. They simply write the contracts and figure what goes on and collect. The, they call them rebates, but they're 
they really kickbacks. You know, we should be like, we should be doing a hashtag, call them kickbacks, not rebate. Here's where it gets complicated. And I will apologize. And I don't want anyone listening to feel badly because healthcare is completely complex, convoluted. It's like a big Rube Goldberg machine. I think they do it that way on purpose so no one can unwind it. And I'm not even saying that I have fully unwound it, but I certainly spent a lot of time trying. So you are correct that the pharmacy benefit managers are on behalf of the insurance company choosing what goes on the formulary and the drug makers have the right to pay them. So it's a huge conflict of interest. So it's a pay to play. They're buying their way under the formulary. So as a physician, when I write an outpatient prescription, I don't, I'm not really selecting what I want. I'm selecting what was bought into the system. And it, it is that way because our lawmakers were the ones who bestowed the PBMs with the right to kickback, the right to have, to be able to receive kickbacks without getting prosecuted. Now you brought up hospital things like devices and mm-hmm. you know solutions like saline, et cetera. There's another whole set in industry called group purchasing organizations. They are the ones who are running, there's four big companies. Those four big companies are running roughly 90% of all hospital supplies. I mean, and more than just the devices, you know, the bedpans, the office supplies that are inside of a hospital, the bed sheets, everything is purchased through a big group purchasing organization in 90% of hospitals across America. Now, these big four GPOs also have the right to receive money from all of the manufacturers. So it's pay to play in the hospitals too. So I know doctors across America that will say to me, hey, you know, I'm an anesthesiologist and um, sometimes I put central lines. Uh, it's like a, a big IV that you put into someone and you get used to certain quality in equipment. But they're telling me that we have really crummy quality equipment. They changed everything on us. And when I complain, they say we can't do anything because it's the hospital group purchasing organization that decided. And the hospital group purchasing organization was paid by the manufacturer of the crappy IV setup tray. And so now doctors don't even have the equipment that they're using, that they're used to working with. And worse than not having the equipment, uh, last year, and I wrote about this one in the Harrisburg newspaper called Penn Live. It's called uh, Medical Supply Middlemen Made the flu crisis worse. There was a gigantic normal saline shortage last year. And for your general listeners, that means salt water. There was a shortage of sterile salt water across America. Now, the very clever group purchasing organizations, the people who are the people who worked it out so that there was one company named Baxter in Puerto Rico that was supplying pretty much all of America with their sterile salt water. And when you're one company that's doing almost all of the manufacturing, are you charging a high price or a low price? Clearly, they're going to inflate the price. If sure. So, supplier. Yeah. So that bag of normal saline, which we use for patients that have dehydration, patients that have the flu and have dehydration, babies that have GI bugs and are vomiting and have dehydration. Saline is used in like every operating room, et cetera. The bag of normal saline should be costing the hospital $10. Um, I didn't write this article, but if you go look up the $543 bag of saline, you'll discover that hospitals are paying a lot more than $10, not because there's a short supply of saline, but there's a short supply of $10 a bag saline because there's one company that uh, likely 
paid enough money to pay to play to become the sole source contractor. And it's not just sailing. You can go to the FDA drug shortage website. And over the years, there have been on and off uh, over 300 drugs and solutions that have come on to the shortage list. Some of them go off the shortage list, but most of them are essential life-saving medications. Epinephrine, you know, like what you need when you're child has a life-threatening food allergic reaction, as 1 in 13 do. Things like Lasix that you need to diurese a patient with congestive heart failure. Things like magnesium that you need to give a pregnant woman when she has high blood pressure to prevent her from having a dangerous seizure, which is dangerous not just for her, but for her unborn baby. We're short of right now, I think, around 140 drugs. And when you look at that list, 90% of them have a single manufacturer. And a group that is completely aware of this is called Physicians Against drug shortages. It was founded by Phil Zweig, a journalist, and uh, Dr. Robert Campbell, an anesthesiologist. And they're they're well aware of all these issues. The root cause of these drug shortages, which is driving high hospital prices, is the fact that group purchasing organizations have the right to receive legalized kickbacks. And on the outpatient side, the pharmacy benefit managers have the right to receive legalized kickbacks. So you're now in a setting where for very common medications and most of them are generic. You have a single source or maybe only one or two companies, three in the case of insulin, and it's causing shortages and it's driving up the price. It's absolutely outrageous. Well, and the sad thing is normal saline, it sounds complicated, but it is literally water with a little bit of salt on it that they sterilize probably by heating it up in a bag. You're exactly right. Any high school teacher could make that with well, the correct amount of salt. Bad, if they were able to make what they made on Breaking Bad, imagine what they can make on... Uh... Well, and, and magnesium, you could go to the store and buy magnesium over the counter very cheaply. You just have to be able to put it in, into a solution and sterilize it, which you could do with a kiln. So these are not rare, hard to make compounds that people need to survive and live. They're very, very cheap to make and readily available. Absolutely. It's, it's completely outrageous. And so now let's get to the numbers and what it's costing America. Mm-hmm. And you've heard a lot about drug pricing lately in the news. I'm sure you have. And I've been publishing like a madwoman about it because I just go down, I drive down to DC on my own time and dime, which I don't mind because I've sort of figured out what's going on with the system and where the money is going. You know, I, I, Americans are paying more than ever and getting less. And if you break down... Before you get into that, this is a point I think that is often mis- mixed ex- or missed, especially with sometimes it falls into the vaccine argument or other drug arguments. When you see a healthcare provider, whether that be a physician, a nurse practitioner, a PA or a nurse or whoever it is you're seeing, they are paid to see you. That is how they get paid. They are not paid to prescribe you medication. Their payment is independent of whether they prescribe anything or not. So while, based on what you said, the there's certain people making money off that drug prescription, the healthcare provider gets none of it. The kickback, you mean? There's no money. Like it's it's actually illegal for say someone to give a healthcare provider money to prescribe something to you. So a drug company cannot go to your physician and say, we're going to give you a hundred dollars if you prescribe this many scripts. Uh, co- completely clean. illegal. You would go, like uh, your healthcare provider will go to jail for that. Yes. However, it is legal. Basically. Uh, can I actually, I need to correct you. Sure. Correct me. Please do. Currently, I 
I believe, unless they changed, I don't think I, I don't think they passed a law that I missed. Uh, it's actually physicians that are the only ones that have sunshine because if physicians are, we're allowed to give lectures on medications and we're allowed to go to drug rep lunches, but all of that is made completely transparent. Um, there's a website, you can look it up under the Physician Sunshine Act. You brought up other mid-level providers. Mm-hmm. So physicians are separate from nurse practitioners and physician's assistants. As far as I'm aware, nurse practitioners and PAs, there's no sunshine for them right now. Okay. Yeah. But that's why I don't like using the word provider. Sure. It's it, it lumps people together and, you know, we are trained as physicians. They are trained as nurse practitioners. It's, I like people to be called by their title. I think and that, that makes sense. So the, so physicians then, they cannot, they're not paid at all for any sort of prescription that they're writing. And their reasons for that is that they are prescribing what they think is appropriate without any sort of conflict of interest. Exactly. So sorry, before I cut you off, you're going to go into some numbers. Oh, yes. So we were talking about, because I want it to be about the patient, you know, because look, I won't whitewash all physicians. There's, there's certainly, you know, we all read about them in the paper, the pill mill physicians that are inappropriately prescribing narcotics. I get that. I understand, you know, but there's bad eggs in every, in every basket, right? I read, I have wonderful teachers in my district, but I've certainly read about teachers that end up getting led away in handcuffs for various reasons. And and it makes me sad for the good ones. So I hope America has the same response for people that spent so many years training because most of us really want to take care of people. In any case, they're suffering more than we are, however. Over the last, uh, since the 70s, healthcare costs in general are up four times. So I guess you would say 400%. And then if you break it down, hospital costs are up 10 times. So 10,000%. But pharmaceutical companies, you want to guess what number? I wouldn't want to guess. Just tell me. 133 times. So put all the right zeros on it. So clearly pharmaceutical cost is driving this whole issue here of spending. So that's one of the reasons that, because I'm very, I'm a fiscal conservative. I don't understand why we're not all fiscal conservatives because you know, it does, the stuff doesn't grow on trees. We all know it. And if you have saved money and gotten rid of waste, then you know, you've done yourself a good job for the future, I believe. And then I've just described to you that we're allowing an incredible amount of waste to go into the pockets of these pharmaceutical middlemen that control the prescription drug line and they control the hospital supply line. And I just told you that hospitals and drugs were driving the healthcare costs. So why would we let these two big industries, which total seven companies for almost the entire industry because they've consolidated, why would we let these seven companies be able to suck America out of $200 billion per year? Let that sink in and let me say it again. The kickbacks that they receive are taking up at least $200 billion per year for companies that don't do research, don't manufacture, and don't even move the drugs around. They simply write the contracts and collect the kickbacks, dear Lord, and and cause the shortages. I mean, doesn't this sound like a failed Soviet Pistrakia system? It's just crazy. Doesn't sound capitalist to me. No, it's, uh, you know, people say, oh, the free market has failed. What they don't realize in healthcare is we don't have a free market. And I'm not, I'm not an advocate that believes that we, all of us want the same thing. And that's the ground we should meet on. You know, the idea of repealing the ACA, it's just a dead issue. Just stop. It's a Mm non-starter. But so is the idea of Medicare for all. It's a non-starter right now because no one's pulling back the curtain and dissecting. So now let's get back to those hearings that are happening down in the Senate and in Congress. So I went to one, I think, three or four weeks ago, and it was the first Senate Finance Committee hearing led by Chairman Grassley and Ranking Member Ron White. 
Biden of Oregon. And they seem like they really want to have a good bipartisan effort to reduce drug prices. That's what the whole hearing was about. It was a good start. I wrote an article about the hearing and I'm on the editorial board of my suburban Philadelphia Bucks County newspaper. I'm going to give a big shout out to the Courier Times and Intel. They've been fantastic. They're working on a lower staff too, I might add. They've had cuts over the years and the editors, that you know, the paid editors have been absolutely marvelous. I'm a volunteer at the newspaper. I do it for free, but I wrote one article after the first hearing, kickbacks kill and cost those with pre-existing conditions. Because if you think about it, everyone who has pre-existing conditions are the ones who are more likely to need medications and need to be hospitalized. And they're the ones that are getting hurt the most by this ridiculous $200 billion a year we all give to middlemen who have little value in the system and who are simply just writing contracts and taking kickbacks. To play devil's advocate, someone could argue that, yes, you should just lower drug prices, but does that really solve the problem? Because you still need money to research drugs, fund drugs to make sure they're safe, work the supply chain. So where are you going to cut the costs to bring down drug prices? Could we start with making all kickbacks illegal again? I mean, doesn't that make sense? The bill's already written. It seems like that would be an easy fix. And I'm not saying that's the only fix. There's other things. It seems like a reasonable start. Kickbacks in general seem like they would be a bad idea. Uh, (laughs) You know, my my new little line, you know, to ask lawmakers is, I'm sorry, are you for patients or are you for sustaining kickbacks? Because it's only one or the other, really. So how does it go when you talk to lawmakers and and mention that or say that phrase? They're, I think right now they're afraid because, and this is what is so wonderful about doing this, this event with you and doing other events, town halls around the country. Uh, videos that I've made and so on and so forth. They're scared to death. And why? Because so far, you know, who's been backing up the kickbacks? The, of course, the group purchasing organizations and of course, the pharmacy benefit managers. And then I mentioned that they're not even like trucking the drugs and the solutions around. They have three big distributors who do that. Cardinal, McKesson and Amerisource Bergen. Those three companies are all in the top 15 of the Fortune 500. Top 15. And they all have special little arrangements with both the pharmacy benefit managers and the PBM. So the summary of this is that in order for the drug company to get the drug, and I would guess that this applies to devices as well, but Mm -hmm. for, for the manufacturer to get it to the patient, meaning you and everyone who's listening, they have to pay some sort of organization, which is basically bribing them or lobbying them, however you want to say it, to get that drug or device onto this group purchasing order in order for you to get it. Yeah, they have to pay to play. Now, if you cut out that kickback mechanism, that dramatically decreases the cost of all of these devices without changing the quality of the devices or the availability of the devices, which means you have more money then to do research, come up with more drugs, to lower the price of drugs so more people have access to them. Oh, and even better than that, although this will take a little while. So remember we talked about the shortages? Yes. Now it's possible because you don't have to pay a big mint of money to play. Now it's possible as a company to start going back to generics. We're going to reestablish a true generic market. Right now, I think it's roughly seven companies in America are making 80 to 90% of all generic drugs. And the generics aren't as cheap as they should be because 
because of that. There's no competition. It will take a little while because, of course, you know, people have to invest and, you know, get the capital going. But what it will do is it will reestablish a better generic market. And in terms of devices, now you're going to get much more competition and you're going to get, you're going to stimulate new products and innovation to come on out there. But the companies that now have the right to have their device in there, the hospital, they've paid a lot of money to have that. And they probably want to keep, some of them want to keep it the way it is. But I think we've hit a breaking point. So the second Senate Finance uh, Committee hearing was last week. And I wrote about this one too, in the same the same newspaper, the Bucks County Courier Times and the Doylestown Intelligentsia. Guest opinion, make lawmakers cut kickbacks and hold drug companies accountable. So the second Senate Finance Committee hearing was all of the drug company CEOs of the seven biggest, except for one called Horizon. I think they skipped the meeting. I I don't figure that one, but uh, whatever. So those seven big CEOs were sitting in front of the Senate finance and the Senate finance committee is like grilling them. And everyone's like watching because everyone knows that they're going to vilify the drug makers. Remember early in the conversation, I said, you can't just blame the insurance companies. Well, we can't just blame the pharmaceutical companies. I'm not calling them altar boys. They're not. Their CEOs make big money too. But at least they're making drugs. The middlemen, what are they doing? You know, so it was funny watching the whole thing come out because those companies have other things they do to make drugs expensive, but nothing that would account for $200 billion per year. And when you see the event live, it looks like it's a staged Hollywood script movie almost because those companies, and I'll I'll read from my article that was in the Intel just yesterday morning, actually. Wednesday morning, yes. Intel Courier Times. The companies whose CEOs test have given 1.6 million to the campaign committees of 27 of the 28 current members of the finance committee over the last decade. They all know each other. And the biggest taker, my own Pennsylvania Senator, Bob Casey, and then he's followed by four Republicans. Uh, Casey's a Democrat. And then Senator Carper of Delaware is also sitting in there. So each of them have taken a cool 100,000 over the chunk of time from all of those big pharmaceutical companies. It's sort of funny when they're grilling them because it's kind of like, oh, yeah, you know, you know each other and there's a lot of money that's exchanged hands here. You know, there's some other issues there. I really call on that entire finance committee, starting with Senator Grassley and ranking member Wyden. And I loved what Wyden said. At one point, at the end of his time, his challenge uh, was to every big pharma CEO to answer in writing if the rebates, which are actually kickbacks, so get that, they call them rebates, but they're not really rebates because the public doesn't see a stitch of that money. It's all going back to the insurance company and the PBM. If the rebates go away, Senator Wyden asked them, will you reduce list prices by the amount of the rebate? I want to know that too, don't you? That seems like a reasonable question. Yeah, but pharma has some other things they can do too. So it seems like for the average person, even average physician, these are large organizations. So it seems very difficult to fight. So what are some of the things that individuals can do and how can they be part of, say, your organization? And I know there's an event that you're putting on in April. Do you want to discuss? Oh, super. Yeah. You can find Practicing Physicians of America online. It's practice physicians.org. Physicians can join and it's a free membership model. We have affiliate organizations and um, no, they're not uh, not people that are, all of us on our board, we're not making any money. When I travel down to DC, it's my own time and my own dime. I do kind of hope eventually, maybe at least I can cover travel costs because it's, you know, my husband's telling me all the time, you know, you're, <laughs> you should be practicing more. You're a practicing physician and we got kids in college now. It's okay. We'll get there. So you can join if you're a physician. Practicing Physicians of America has a public Facebook page. It's not a group and people can go and like 
like it and I would love them to do it because in a couple of weeks on April 1st, PPA, along with a group called Physicians for Reform, my dear friend, Dr. C.L. Gray, and David Balot of Texas Public Policy Foundation's uh, Right on Healthcare, we are co-hosting an event at the Library of Congress. Um, we've been sponsored by a congressman who's been very supportive of the efforts to reduce drug prices. And Dr. Roger Marshall is from the first district of Kansas. He's an obstetrician and he's uh, very well versed on all of the issues that, that we will be discussing. The Library of Congress event, it's it's a small event. You can only fit like 100 and 110 people in the room. We have uh, leaders from various healthcare grassroots organizations. We have uh, leaders of physician patient advocacy organizations and we have policy shapers. We're told that we might be having some government officials aside from congressmen and senators coming in. The whole thing will be on our Facebook Live on Practicing Physicians of America. We have five areas we're discussing. You can probably hear it in my voice. Sorry, everyone, if I got really excited when I talked about the drug pricing thing, but it's just, I find it fascinating. So we're going to be talking about drug pricing. We are going to be talking about ways to create a more sustainable and effective safety net for the neediest that walk among us. Um, We're going to be talking about innovative models of healthcare access and financing. Uh, We're going to be talking about transparency and we're going to be talking about ways to help with the physician shortage because there is a physician shortage in in case you didn't know. So those five things will be our big broad topics. We will be distributing a paper. It's mostly written. I did a a good bit of that one myself. That was last week. I like to write, but the paper will be delivered to uh, anyone who attends. It will be delivered to uh, lawmakers because after we finish our meetings, we're going to be canvassing the Senate and the House and all of us are from all over the country. It's it's going to be amazing what a picture we'll make. Physicians from Utah, from Mississippi, from Texas, from Oklahoma, from California, from physicians that grew up in Alaska, you know, physicians from Idaho, physicians from New York, they're from everywhere. We are heavy on the women because women tend to be den mothers and they're all kind of coming along and helping with everything. And we are, we're transpartisan. We're from both sides of the aisle. We're talking about issues that transcend a letter behind someone's name that tends to indicate how they vote. That's just nonsense. This is healthcare. Get over it. Let's not be partisan about it anymore. And we've gotten over it. So maybe we'll be a little bit of a, an example for how Congress could kind of heal their own partisanship that seems to be down there. So we're from all different backgrounds as well. It's quite a diverse group. And I I didn't pick people for diversity. I picked people because they have fantastic knowledge. And the ones that are presenting are rock stars. Uh, We'll be releasing a full agenda very soon that names who's presenting. And then the paper will be released publicly. And of course, the Facebook Live will happen and we'll be recording the whole thing. What can individual people do? What general people can do, they can go and find Practicing Physicians of America on our Facebook page and like us and look for the content that we're putting out because it's not just me writing. I have a crackerjack board, Dr. Westby Fisher. Physicians will know him from his maintenance and certification work. Dr. Judith Thompson, she's our nuts and bolts and our brains behind our operation. Dr. Craig Wax of New Jersey, he's an osteopathic doctor and a general practitioner. Dr. Brian J. Dixon from Texas, he's a child psychiatrist. He has his own expertise in healthcare. My fellow writer, Dr. Naran El-Ajba, writes for Kitsap Sun newspaper out in Washington State. Dr. El-Ajba is a prolific writer. She I don't know how she has got one more kid than me. I've got three. She's got four. I don't know how she does it. And she, I think, works more hours too. Kudos to her. Follow us on practicingphysicians.org. And, you know, when you 
read some of the pieces that I hope you include with the podcast, especially the most uh, recent one, you can just go to the last paragraph of this article that I brought up, Make Lawmakers Cut Kickbacks and Hold Drug Companies Accountable. And you can call your lawmaker and you can read for them. Read to them word for word the last paragraph that's in here. I call on the entire finance committee and the Congress to take Senator Wyden's challenge, go beyond HHS's prohibition for kickbacks and do the same for GPOs and PBMs. So get rid of the kickbacks, no kickback, no kickbacks anymore. Make kickbacks illegal. Compel big pharma to reduce prices by the amount of the kickbacks that they're saving. I do think allowing Medicare to negotiate drug prices down will certainly help. And then there's another part in there that is, we don't have to get into the issue about the patent protected period for biologics, but that's in there as well. In speaking to congressmen, what I think definitely makes a difference is if you call your Congress people and call your local representatives and email or call your governor because the reason that government officials will what they will use this money for when they have donations is they will use it to campaign to get elected that's what they're doing with this money because they want to keep their job so if they know that their constituents care about this drug pricing issue and they get lots of phone calls from individuals and lots of phone calls from groups of people that will definitely sway them to voting for this anti-kickback movement. I'm going to put out a request to anyone who is listening. And here's what I'll tell you. And I've had lawmakers tell me this. If we got 50 calls in one week about a certain issue, we'd have to pay attention to it. So everyone who's listening right now, go look up how to contact my congressmen and senators and then write down their numbers, put them in your phone, plug them into your phone and find 10 friends to do the same and ask them to each find two or three friends, right? So if you do that and then you call your congressman and both senators, three phone calls, and you call them up and you say, hi, I'm your constituent. I am from this district. Pharmaceutical costs are driving healthcare costs. Patients are paying more and getting less. I demand that you remove all kickbacks that are legal for group purchasing organizations and PBMs. I know about the middlemen. Make their kickbacks go away. It's very simple. I can write up a paragraph for you later, Dr. Ferguson. That's just asking. If you include that little statement, we'll include it in the show notes for exactly what you want to say. But if you share that on social media, you share it on Twitter, Instagram, et cetera, it can quickly become a whole movement. And very quickly, that will make lawmakers pay attention because you're voting for them. If you do not vote for them, then you can elect someone that is a voice for your opinions. And this is really a true bipartisan issue because this affects everyone. I think it would be hard to find anyone that would would argue that, yes, there should be kickbacks to allow a monopoly. Exactly. No. Well, the only people that want the kickbacks to stay are the lawmakers. They're squirming. You asking how they're, they're reacting. They're just kind of squirming. Well, are you really sure it costs that much? I'm like, hello, can you give me one good reason anyone has the right to receive legalized kickbacks? They usually like sit down and shut up, but then they also take a look at me, I think, and think, well, she's just one doctor. Well, this one doctor has kind of really like informed a lot of doctors now, and uh, we're getting the word out on a number of channels. The other thing that I will say, and it's this is just kind of coming clean, I realize that President Trump, in some a lot of a lot of strong feeling. You know, I understand that completely. So it, President Trump knows about this issue. His HHS secretary, Alex Azar, has uh, released a rule written by the HHS that said that they're going to get rid of the kickbacks in, in just the Medicare and Medicaid markets. It doesn't do anything for the commercial markets, and they're only doing it for the PBMs, not the GPOs. So What are, what are all those, the, those acts? Uh, so the, remember, the PBMs are for the outpatient prescription drugs, mm-hmm. PBM 
M, think prescription, P. And then remember, the group purchasing organizations are for the hospital supplies. Mm -hmm. So if we just let that rebate rule stand that was written by Health and Human Services, if that is all that's done, then we're not touching everyone else who's not on Medicare and Medicaid for the pharmacy benefit managers. We're not touching them, the kickbacks for prescription drugs in commercial insurances. And we're not touching any of the hospital supply kickbacks that are going on. And imagine how much money that is. And so, you know, our estimates like, and it's probably actually even a conservative estimate, but it's, it's 30,000 or uh, 200 billion per year. Takeaway message from this podcast is that large organizations are influencing drug prices, drug costs. These drug companies are allowing kickbacks to insurance companies and other politicians for allowing these things to go through. I'll include in the show notes the exact wording. If you want to be involved, you can make a huge difference. And really, if you call your representatives, your state representatives, your governor, et cetera, if you call them and let them know if, if you get other people to call them, if they keep getting these phone calls, very quickly they will notice. And that's how change happens. If you share this information on social media, that again, quickly can create momentum and allowing for change. Dr. Moss, this is a good example of you as an individual working with other people to move and influence very large organizations. And you also have, again, the event in April to lobby and discuss all of these things. Yeah. Yeah. Those things are all going on. And, you know, the other thing I'll say to the audience, just so I know I come on like a freight train probably because I'm getting so excited because this is like six years of work that I've been at and after, and we're finally getting that voice. And if you think about it, having all of those physician leaders in the room, you know, we are representing tens of thousands of physicians where we really need to calculate everyone up, but we're thinking like 25, 30,000 physicians represented by the leaders that are in that room. So I want everyone that's listening to understand I'm an everyday person. I'm just a, a mom who watched her mother humiliated by the system. And I'm like, uh-uh, not happening to anyone else. It, I guess it's a little Aaron Brockovichy. I'm taking this on. I'm coming for you, boys. <laughs> it's mostly boys, really. <laughs> not There's more than just that, but everyone can do this. And if everyone did just a little... They don't have to do what I'm doing, but if they made phone calls and got some people to call, isn't it worth it for you to do that for yourself, for your parents, for your children, for your grandchildren to make a call and don't think you can't change it. You know, we've moved the needle on this whole issue of the kickbacks. We're getting published left and right. We've turned people's ideas on this. And I think if, if Congress and the Senate sees that the public knows about this, it will happen. And think about, think about the power behind that. Not that it's power for me, it's power for the people because the people can understand if we get together in a group and demand what is right, demand that these lawmakers act as the public servants that they swore to be, if we demand that that happens, that they stand, that they stand for the public over profits, that they stand for the public over special interests, that they stand for the public over kickbacks, that they stand for the public over profiteers. If the public demands it, we can make it happen. You call them up. I know what you and Congress have done here. You may not know it. I'm giving you the chance to come clean and stand against kickbacks. The bill is written. We're waiting for the brave soul to introduce it. Well, Dr. Moss, thank you very much. And again, we'll include all of your social media posts, uh, the Facebook link and those articles. So any closing thoughts before we go? You know, really healthcare is about trust. And I think Americans need to sit down and take a strong, deep thought 
try to dissect the system a little bit and ask themselves, am I going to trust the government and I'm going to trust the profiteering middlemen, insurance companies, pharmaceutical companies, hospitals that are all in on this boondoggle that I've described to you and many others? Am I going to trust those people or am I going to trust the doctors that take care of me, the nurses that care for me in the hospital? Who am I going to trust? And, you know, as I said, I'm not going to whitewash my profession. Not every physician is, uh, you know, a, a good person here, but we have a gathering of people that do not have conflicts of interest and we're putting out some great information. You can take a look at it when it comes out in the Facebook form and in the paper form. And we'd love to have people's support to make healthcare better for all of us and for the future. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate you taking the time and educating everyone. And again, I can't add emphasize enough how important it is for everyone to, if they, if they feel strongly about the, this issue, to call their representatives because it will make a difference. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a comment on the Get Healthy 360 Facebook page and consider subscribing to this podcast. Thanks.